If you have ever had a chance to walk in a forest when the autumn colors are at their peak and the gentle rain makes them even brighter, then maybe you have been in awe. Or you stood at the precipice of the Grand Canyon and looked down the 4,000 feet to the Colorado River below. Then maybe you have been in awe. Well, on the phone today within awe at Bruce, we have Dr. Neve Middleton of Dublin, Ireland. She actually grew up as a Catholic, but then at 14 became an atheist. And her future husband wanted to pursue being a Roman Catholic priest, but she convinced him otherwise. They went ahead married, had two daughters, but then something happened. And Neve became a born-again Christian, and in 1994 began a study of theology, culminating in her Ph.D. in 2003. She lectures at DCU, which is Dublin City University, in moral and systematic theology, and she recently released her book, Homo Lapis, Sin, Evolution, and the God Who is Love. Please welcome Neve Middleton. Neve, thanks for being on the phone with us today. You're welcome. Glad to have you here. It's probably good to start with, what was it that growing up in a, in a, uh, a country that is primarily Roman Catholic, what hit you at 14 that you said, nah, I'm, I'm done with this? Well, I don't know if you know, but in Ireland, the church got an awful lot of power after independence. Ireland was probably the last theocracy in the West. It was a theocracy growing up. One day in, in class, you know, I've always questioned everything. It's just the way I am. And I asked a question in a religion lesson one day um, about a doctrine. And the, the nun, who was a very kind nun, but she said something to me like, I know you don't mean that, Neve, because that'd mean you're a heretic. Oh, so, boy. Yeah. And also, they were very, you know, if you didn't go to mass on a Sunday, you'd get in trouble in school and various things. And I just didn't really get any sense of Christianity. I was afraid. It was kind of like a fear thing. And you couldn't ask any questions. So... At the time then, I, I had to ask my father. The whole country went to Mass. They attendance at Mass was, was practically 100%. My father, as it so happened, was a trade union leader, and he he himself was, was anti-clerical in the country, which was unusual. So I asked him, I said, look, I don't want to practice anymore because I don't believe in this, and I don't believe I should have to go if I don't want to. So he said, make your case, and I did. And he said, okay. Now, my mother was very upset and mm. she was kind of saying, oh, don't give up going to Mass. But anyway, I just felt it was hypocritical to go. And when the whole country was going to Mass, I stopped going. And I shortly after met my husband, who was extremely religious. And uh, he had wanted to go and be uh, a brother, you know, a monk, a Christian brother at 12. But his mother said, said he was too young and wouldn't let him. So he had then felt he wanted to be a priest when we met. So it was a, it was quite a story. After a few years, he changed his mind and... We decided to get married. But he still, did he still keep his beliefs at that point? Oh, yeah. He was very religious. And okay. When we had the children and so on, he insisted on that they would be christened and that he brought them to mass every Sunday when they were old enough. Um, oh, yes. He always kept his religious beliefs. He was very religious. <laughs> so what was the turnaround for you? What made the difference all of a sudden that you went from 14 turned into atheism to, boom, becoming a Christian. It was later in life when I became a Christian. Like, I was an adult. But what happened was, I was a primary school teacher. That's what, my, what I started off as, a primary school teacher. And in this country, most of the schools are denominational, so I had to teach religious education. 
which I didn't want to do. And I, I let the priest who was in, who did, on the board of management, who was a very nice priest and he was, he was very understanding. And I told him I didn't believe in what I was teaching. And he said that was okay, like once I taught it professionally. But the thing is, post-Vatican II, a new form of religious education was brought in. Like I was brought up with a catechism where you learned dogma off by heart. That was one of the issues I realised looking back. In the Catholic tradition, we don't have very much contact with the Bible, or we didn't. So I didn't really know anything about Jesus. You know, it was all about going to Mass and making sure you went to Mass and going to confession and so on. But we had very little contact with the Bible. But after Vatican II, that all changed. Vatican II was a bit of a nod to Martin Luther. Okay. So it changed. There was a beautiful program. A biblical was called The Children of God, and it was had beautiful pictures of Jesus, and it was all about how Jesus was their friend and full of biblical stories. So I discovered I really liked reading it. I got kind of drawn into it. So that was one, that was the kind of the first step. Then another thing that I was, unfortunately, I had a bad experience. I won't go into the full details of it. Let's just say it was an assault. Okay. I was assaulted. And after, Sorry. Yeah. Um, after it, I suffered from a depression. And during that time, and I've since discovered this from having studied theology, during that time of feeling very lonely and on my own, the story of Jesus just suddenly came to life. I just felt I wasn't on my own. That somebody mm. else suffered and been on and felt lonely and I, I found then that I was drawing great inspiration and, and help re, help and sustenance and stopped being alone from my religion so that was you know really got me through looking back on it then the next thing was when I came through everything and everything got back to normal I decided that I would do a master's in religious education because I thought it was time to do some more study anyway I uh, decided that since I hadn't been studying in a while, I would do a part-time course just to get back into the groove of studying. So I found a course, in an evening course, in UCD, that's another university in Dublin, University College of Dublin, a part-time one in religious education, which I thought I should do because I was interested in religious education now and why it had changed and how this new way approach had come in. So I decided I would do that to get myself back into the groove of study. But anyway, the very first lecture I had was in moral theology. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as theology. I just thought... Um, it was dogma, it stuck in dog by heart. And I also didn't think I'd be doing theology. Anyway, I thought it was religious education, but it grabbed me straight away. And then, of course, we were doing biblical theology and systematic theology, and I became absolutely hooked. And I realized that I want any further study I was doing, I wanted to keep doing this. I didn't want to ever give it up. I, didn't huh. want, I always wanted to be involved in it. So instead of doing the master's in, in religious education, I did a master's in theology and went on then to do my PhD. That's how it happened. And um, my book is really a result kind of comes out of the different perspectives I have and the different the different experiences that I had. Because, I mean, as I'm sure as you know, Homo Laps, it's, it's about um, evolution, the whole creation evolution debate and religion science debate. And when I was an atheist, I was a total Darwinist and thought, you know, Darwin could explain everything about why we behave the way we do, that mm. we need the Christian explanation. I was, you know particularly when you're bringing up children and you see the way they behave, you can see, you can, you can, to me, evolution was so obviously true. But I thought that the Darwinian explanation for behavior was, um, had great explanatory power for everything. However, when I became a Christian, that was a problem then, because if the way we evolved was inevitable and Auschwitz and all those awful things were inevitable, that would cast out on an all-good, all-powerful God of the Abrahamic faiths of, mm-hmm. of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So I decided that I would explore that. And did we have to evolve like this? That was what I, I did my PhD on. That was, I was very interested in that. Um, my research showed that we didn't, that we had a choice. 
and also the way to undo the damage that the life of Jesus and, and the story of his life and everything he said and did shows us how to rectify it. So that's what the book came out of, actually. So as you're thinking about people that are out there that, that could be listening to this and they're saying, gosh, I'm not, I'm not a real science person, but you want to make sure that they understand, knowing that what's being put out there a lot by uh, scientists that are atheists right now seems like good arguments. But what would you say to them about understanding or helping them understand why it doesn't really work that way and why those answers don't satisfy and what the Bible said does? Yes. Well, the whole point is I've written the book to be accessible and precisely for that reason, because there are so many books of popular science out there putting out these arguments and saying that they can explain everything. And you even have popular uh, science writers and scientists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and so on saying that science should replace religion. Um, that there's no need for it anymore. And you have, you know, E.O. Wilson saying we can explain evil and science can sort it out and so on with genetic engineering and very worrying kind of things. So I have written the book to put the corresponding theological and philosophical arguments in direct relation in, in such a way that anybody can understand them and the science. That's exactly why I wanted to do to make this accessible, because I think it's very important that Christians can respond to these arguments and can understand them themselves. Because we actually have an awful lot to learn. Like we get a much bigger picture of human nature and salvation and and everything that when you when you put the two accounts together. I mean, I mm. think it's the way forward. That's what I wrote the book for, so that Christians could understand what the issues are and why, in fact, revelation turns out to be the highest form of knowledge. Because revelation is telling us these things long before science did. So I think in your book you kind of put down that the evolution of evil seems to be kind of the key. Yes. Can you give us just a brief understanding of that? A lot of people get sidetracked by the creation issue. But creation, the scientific account of creation, isn't a threat to Christianity because well, in the Catholic tradition, of course, like we accept it, that there's a large mythological dimension to Genesis. And that what the Bible can tell us is that God is the creator. That's the main thing. God created the universe. Science can't tell us that. And that mm -hmm. we have a purpose for it and that we have a purpose. The real problem is the evolution of evil. That's what's the real problem posed by science, evolutionary biology, because they say that the evolution of evil was inevitable. And we're actually in a kind of an evolutionary deadlock. I mean, we have evolved in such a way that altruism and aggression are kind of in a sort of an evolutionary deadlock where a kind of a dynamic equilibrium where aggression is greater than altruism and, and altruism cannot increase sufficiently on its own to evolution to kind of overcome our worst traits. That's the findings of science. That, and of course, that immediately makes the gospel good news because it's, you know, we can. The thing is that what I did was I did a lot of research in evolutionary biology, primatology and anthro and paleoanthropology, very fascinating subjects to see, did it have to be like that? Did we have to evolve that way? Mm -hmm. And when you read through it, you can see, no, we were evolving to be good. We were evolving towards the kingdom of God and that we did have a choice that, in fact, it would be far more likely that we could have evolved to be the most intelligently cooperative and peaceful species on the planet. Mm. That a choice or choices were made that affected the course of evolution. And um, the evidence actually supports that. So, again, this is something that science could never tell us. It just can tell us it can tell us how we evolved and what the effects are, which are mm -hmm. very useful. Because, you know, knowledge is power. And we now, now that we know how we have evolved, that is helpful. It helps us to understand what we need to do to rectify it. But it can't tell us that didn't have to be like that. 
or that grace is available, that with grace we can resolve that. Mm-hmm. And it actually it emphasizes all the more for me because this is this is something very new. And yet the gospel completely stands up to it, like transcends it. I mean, Jesus himself transcended his time and place in the way he lived his life. To me, it is further support for the divinity of Jesus, that that's what, what's now emerging. And it's helping us to understand in a new way exactly how the gospel is good news. And when you take the two accounts together, you get a much more expanded picture of, of human nature and what need, the kingdom of God and what needs to be done for salvation. And also much more hopeful. OK, it corroborates that there was a primal fall, but it's mm-hmm. a more optimistic kind of a version of it than what we would have been brought up with. Hopeful one. It gives us a much more hopeful picture of progress and how to go about it, you know. Yes, because you could look at it from the, it's the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Yeah. What it shows is, to me, when you look back at the course of evolution, that there's a fundamental goodness in human nature that nothing can wipe out. It shows how altruism evolved. There's a basic Mm -hmm. amount of altruism there that's always a basis for supernatural grace to work on. The Christian love, agape love, would be kind of super altruism. That didn't evolve, but the basis for it evolved. But we still do have agape love. That's another thing that convinces me that we are a supernatural species. Agape love is, is there, all right. What we have coming from science, from, from evolutionary biology, you know, you have the atheistic scientists like Richard Dawkins saying things like knowledge is power, and now that we know about our selfish genes, we can throw them in the lake, we can tell them go jump in the lake. That is not going to happen. I mean, you, it's too entrenched in human nature. People like him are talking about things like E.O. Wilson has said genetic engineering and other prosthetic means. Um, but at the same time, they are right saying knowledge is power. A lot can be done culturally and politically. You just need a combination, but it, it cannot be done without grace and Christianity. That's what's emerging from evolutionary biology to me, that we need grace, that we leave science to itself. That, you know, technological progress is racing ahead of the ethics. And you have people like Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote, he's a futurologist and a best-selling author. He wrote two but homo sapiens and homo deus. And he's an atheist, but he's saying we have to take account of how we evolved in order to avoid these that have happened in the past and that could happen in the future now, the way the technology is is, is going so quickly. I would agree with a lot of what he said, but what I would disagree is we need grace, we need religion. We cannot do it on our own. Politics will never be enough. Yeah. Uh, we need Christianity now as never before. I like your call to that, and I like the fact that you refer to us as supernatural because with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are And we have the ability to express something that without the spirit, you don't see. And and we can do things not by our power, but by God's power that that really can affect the world around us. And I I love your call. It's like a clarion call to be what we have become, which is supernatural beings. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I like that. Another thing, actually, that very few people actually know this, Darwin's co discoverer of natural selection, Alfred Russell Wallace. He was an atheist and a communist, and Darwin himself was actually going to be an Anglican clergyman. But when he saw the way natural selection affected human nature, he lost his faith in the all-good, all-powerful God of Christianity. He became an agnostic because he thought it was inevitable, you know. But Wallace, his co-discoverer, he went the opposite direction. He became convinced that natural selection could not have achieved us, our cognitional or our spiritual abilities. So he reckoned that there must have been divine intervention in the evolutionary process, that there was divine intervention at least once. 
Uh, certainly, with, he even felt there might have been some intervention with regard to our, our biological attributes like our hands and our the voice and that are the finesse of our features. He certainly felt that our cognition and spiritual abilities, that natural selection couldn't have achieved that. So he felt that there was divine intervention. And that was kind of suppressed at the time because of the conflict between religion and science. And he suffered for saying that. The latest evidence supports that. Paleoanthropology supports divine intervention in the evolutionary process. Because when you look at the, the other species, there were loads of hominid species. We were one among them. We were anatomically modern for a long time before we got our cognitional skills. Mm-hmm. And during that time, we coexisted peacefully with the other hominids. We shared their tool technology. We lived in caves with Neanderthals and so on. And then about 70,000 years ago, there was this, it's called the cognitive revolution or the great leap forward in the fossil record, where suddenly we suddenly had all our abilities and it seems to have come as a package. There was as yet no scientific explanation for it. There's no gradualistic explanation for it. There is another kind of school in science that talks about an evolutionary mechanism called punctuated equilibrium, which moves at the level of species and can achieve rapid results. There's no punctuated mechanism that can explain it either. And anyway, punctuated equilibrium is not, the, the scientific evidence doesn't support it. But they kind of say, well, look, because we can't, we appear so suddenly, there must be some other mechanism. But they can't provide one. But the thing is, for the theist, you think, oh, well, it's quite obvious. And um, in the Catholic tradition, actually, Pope John Paul II said, we have that as a belief, not yet a doctrine. There's a lot of theology, but no doctrine yet in Christianity to, you know, on the new findings from evolutionary biology. But he said that we can believe the body evolved, but that the soul was infused by God into a pre-existing rational species and kind of animated what was there. What was there was already basically good. Mm-hmm. It animated that into what we are, supernatural beings. The fascinating thing is that the evidence supports that, supports divine intervention starts appearing in the fossil record between 70,000 and 90,000 90, years ago in Africa. And then you have a huge amount of it when we came to Europe. The fossil record is very rich there because there was something in the European climate that obviously was conducive to cultural transmission, but it all began in Africa. That's stuff a lot of people don't know, and it's good that you're explaining your book. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's fascinating. It's so interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Tell us why. I, I think I have an idea, but... Tell us why you named your book Homo Lapsus. Well, Homo Lapsus means before original sin, it was a pre-lapsarian world, and this is a post-lapsarian world. So Homo Lapsus just means fallen man. We're Homo sapiens, but we're also Homo Lapsus. So I use that to kind of to link the biological terminology with the Christian terminology. Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis, Homo erectus, Homo ans. There's so many of them, you know. So it's just right. The book is an attempt to reconcile evolutionary biology and Christianity. I felt that that title does that in itself, that it's indicative of what the, of what the book is about, and it reconciles the scientific view and the Christian view in in that by using that uh, phrase, homo lapsus. The other thing I wanted to take a step back on was something that you explained in really what happened with you, but I think is is so true, is that if we put kind of the doctrines and the dogma and everything before the relationship with Christ, we kind of miss the point. Once you get the the relationship and you see who Jesus is and what he was about and everything, then it seems that that's what brings us alive. You know, then we get can get to know him, and that's what Christianity is a, re, a relationship rather than a religion. And and it seemed to work that way in your life. You had all the dogma, and then it wasn't until you really found out about Jesus and had the pictures of him that then things came alive. 
Yeah, I mean, I have discovered that I'm really a naturally religious kind of a person and that if I had had that kind of a religious education myself, I probably never would have become an atheist. Do you mind me asking, what tradition are you in? I'm in a I'm in a Methodist church for the last uh, 17 years. But truthfully, I grew up not really going to church or anything. And I became a Christian at a wrestling camp when I was in high school. But I still didn't really do much when I went back home until after I got out of college. And then I, I just went some, to different churches uh, for about 15, 20 years, uh, most independent churches, not even connected to anything. That's interesting. I became a Christian when I discovered this Jesus. The story, even though particularly reading, you know, having been teaching that, that program, it made the story really come alive. I tell my own students now. And um, when I'm doing moral theology and the, and the Christian morality, the morality that's common across all denominations, which, of course, is grounded in the New Testament. And I always say that Christianity is, is the story of a man who told stories. And, <laughs> yeah, that's what when, when, like as a moral theologian, when you go to the New Testament to look what morality did Jesus leave, he didn't leave a list of rules and regulations. I mean, if you think of like the Old Testament, the first five books of the Torah, the law, the Quran mm-hmm. is loaded along with him. But the New Testament, the only actual thing he said was about divorce. And that was simply because at the time he was asked. And at the time, in the Jewish context, Jewish men were allowed to divorce their wives for the drop of a hat. And they could just say, I divorce you. And yeah. He was saying you're hard hearted. So in the Jewish context, when he was directly asked, but that's about the only thing. Basically, he was all about how to be. How mm-hmm. to, you know, most lists of rules are about thou shalt not and don't do this. But he was all about how to be like the Beatitudes and which is the core of Christian morality, the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all about being loving and being compassionate and uh, being prepared to being humble and being peaceful and standing up for the underdog and the outcast, and, which he always did, and not being judgmental. So it's all about a way of being. And the whole story of his life, of course, is a supreme example of it. And he actually says in John, if you continue in my words, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what he's saying, if you follow in my path, then you will know. I can't leave you a list of rules. You right. By example, and you, you will learn by doing it, and then you'll know, and mm. you'll know the truth. You'll know what the kingdom of God is. You, you know, he used all the parables as well to try to get the kingdom of God across. But he said, you will know the truth, the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that's, again, that's unique to Christianity. You know, mm. all the other religions have their list. So, right. yeah, the story and the and he was such an absolutely, you know, such an amazing, lovable character. Like, you kind of fall in love with him when you when you read the Gospels. Like, when I read the Gospels, I was amazed. I had gotten a taste of it from what I was teaching in school. But when I actually read the Gospels, I was actually amazed by them, you know, and, and by the person that he was and the wonderful things that he said, the stories he told and his story. That's great. And finishing up, I... I wanted to ask you one more thing that I think would be helpful for people to hear, but also just curious about. Your passion is obvious. There's a fire burning inside of you. Yeah. Uh, Is there something that distracts from it? And what keeps it going? How do you just stay on track and keep moving ahead? I read the Bible a lot. And of course, because of my job, you know, I teach Creed and Trinity and I love the doctrine of the Trinity. And I love the, the Bible, the New Testament. So I'm doing it all the time. And of course, I, I have written the book and I'm, I have another book that I'm writing at the moment. And it's called Jesus and Women Beyond Feminism, because, again, his relations and the way he treated women was revolutionary. 
And that, again, is very striking with what we now know about the way we evolved. So up to now, I'm always, and of course, I, I practice as well, you know, religious practice. And I think my work and what I write helps me to stay mm-hmm. always grounded. You know, I'm always in that frame of mind. And I, I also think that um, I've spoken to a lot of evangelicals and they're more gospel based than we are in institutional mm-hmm. Christianity. I think we need to be more gospel based and we also need adults need to be more theologically literate. They need to know more than they know. I really do think that if people knew more in the Catholic tradition, the one that I'm in, um, if people knew more about who Jesus really is, it would completely revitalise the church. I don't know whether you know this, but in Europe, religion is kind of, you know, Christianity is kind of on the wane, very much on the wane. And people in Ireland now, that's the other interesting thing. I left the church here when everybody else was in it. And then when everybody else leaves, I'm back in it. (laughs) Countercultural. Yeah, I'm back in. So I know what people need to get them back in, you know. Right. And I really think that we can move on to a new phase of Christianity that will be actually even more fulfilling, more spiritually fulfilling. But I think that to revitalize it, we need to become more, much more gospel focused than in, than we are at the moment in Catholicism. Oof, yes, <laughs> agree with you there. And I got to tell you, I'm excited about your next book because, you know, I, I just put out a post during uh, Easter that was newsflash. Women first experience resurrection. Yes. <laughs> and exactly. If you were going to make up a story about Jesus resurrecting from the dead at that era in that time, the last thing you do would be have the women as the first witnesses. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. And that's the point I always make to my students to say a woman's testimony is considered to be untrustworthy. So unless it was true, they wouldn't have put it in. You know that the resurrection is true as well. Trying to convince people of the resurrection at the time, the last thing they'd have been doing was saying women's arm first because that would put people off. That's right. It's a beautiful story too, particularly the, the one in John about the, the appearance to Mary Magdalene, you know. Yes, I love that story. That, exactly, yeah, that's it. Yeah, he appeared to women first. We're gonna we're gonna have to talk next time when, when you're ready to release that book. That'll be great. Oh, that'd be great, yeah. Okay. Hey, well, Neve, thank you so much for, for spending this time with us and allowing us to interview you and you know Good luck in, on uh, Homo Lapsus, you know, and just for those that are listening, great book to go get and read. Give us some good basis and strength and confidence in being able to talk to people about science and the connection to Christianity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you have a good day. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.